Tim Chester writes an interesting scenario in his book called A Meal with Jesus. And here's what he writes, kind of a modern day um, scene that may be, be interesting for us to enter into. He says, imagine you are at a dinner party. The host is a respectable church leader and a local councilman who lives in a big house on a posh side of town. Tonight, the dinner party is in honor of a visiting speaker. You're glad to have been invited because there's a lot of talk about this man. He's been causing something of a stir, in fact, with his radical views around town. Some people won't have anything to do with him, but you have an open mind. It's good to have an opportunity to find out what he's really like. You hear the doorbell, but think nothing of it until a woman pushes her way into the room. You see the disparaging face of the host's wife. This new arrival is wearing a tight-fitting, low-cut blouse, a skirt that's way too short, and stiletto shoes. She's painted up to the nines and totters slightly as she walks, probably had too much to drink. She looks like the sort of woman who stands on street corners. She goes straight to the visiting speaker and throws her arms around him, clasping his head in her bosom, and says, I will always be yours. She begins to massage his shoulders. And it's then that you notice she's crying, her mascara streaking down her face. Everyone in the room seems to freeze. What a thing for a respectable speaker to have to endure. You feel for him. How embarrassing. But instead of pushing her away, he reaches up and puts his arms around her. He says something to her that sounds like, and you are mine too. But he can't have, but he can't have said that, the author writes. It's obvious what kind of woman that she is. He can surely see this for himself. He ought to show some discernment. She might think it's a come on. Maybe it is. Maybe he's one of her customers. This visiting speaker, speaker you decide, clearly has some issues. Now, as crazy as that scenario sounds, and as predictable of conclusions that you and I will probably draw when we have heard that, Understand, there was a dinner party that was exactly like that in the setting that Luke describes in first century Palestine. True story. And it happened to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you have some underneath the uh, chairs here downstairs. There's some up in the pews as well in front of you. And in Luke chapter 7, we're going to jump in <clears throat> in verse 36. And let me read this story that perhaps makes us feel uncomfortable. Perhaps makes us feel what's really going on here. Because in the series, as Damon said, we are going through a series called The Other Suppers. Suppers that Jesus had with people. Not only friends, not only disciples, but also, quote unquote, sinners around town. And here's one such. Luke 7, 36 says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, is how Luke refers to it, who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, in other words, standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, those same feelings and those same thoughts that came to mind when I was reading this opening scenario in the book were now on the hearts and the minds of the Pharisees as they saw this take place at this dinner party that was being thrown. And so verse 39 says, when the Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, the one in particular, the host, said, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a, what's the word there? Whoo, you guys are good to condemn her too, huh? huh? She's a sinner, yeah, right? It's true. We all kind of feel some of that, don't we? And Luke is kind of bringing us to that place as well. It's kind of like painting this up, a woman of the city, and here she is. She comes in this party, and oh my goodness, she's a sinner. Now, this next part, this next part we're kind of freaking out a little bit because Simon didn't say what he said out loud. Simon kind of muttered this under his breath, or even more, he just says he said it to himself, which tells me that he didn't even say it out loud, which tells me that it was all over his face, or Jesus could read his mind. And so Jesus says something to him that probably makes him feel a little uncomfortable. He covered it pretty well. It's a little bit like, guys, if your wife or if you're dating your girlfriend uh, says to you, uh, can we talk? You know that's not going to be a good thing, right? Okay. Jesus kind of has one of those sentences here where he says in verse 40, Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so Simon answers, say it, Lord. And Jesus then gives him a mini parable. Again, he's at this dinner party. At these dinner parties, we have people who are trying to be engaging to the people around. And so Jesus decides to share what he needs to share in a story. Here's what he says. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then it says, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So he's now looking at the woman and what she's doing behind him. But he's talking to Simon. And he says, uh, Simon, um, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And we're going to talk about what that meant. But Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, as shocking of a story that this seems to be in 2018, it was even more shocking in 30 AD in the land of Israel. And and let me describe a little bit about what's taking place here, okay? Last week we talked about, if you were not here, that some of these dinner parties would go on for hours upon hours into the night. Some of them could be five, seven, ten hours uh, lasting um, uh, through a mealtime, a first course, a second course, then a main course, and then... And after the main course, there was a symposium of talk of sorts where people would stand up and share some engaging thoughts or they would invite a a local um, teacher to share or have kind of an extended discussion with the dinner guests that were here. And the dinner guests were reclining around a large table on three sides of it. So let me just picture here, if if the stage area is a large table, um, let's say it's, I mean, it's a large table up here, one of the sides would be open for the the servants to come in and out serving the food and bringing it back and forth. But then the dinner guests would recline around one side, two sides, and three sides of the table. Maybe there would even be some people who would be right behind them. Um, But it wouldn't be seated as we normally think about sitting on a chair. It would be more reclining on the ground. And so the table would not be a, you know, a four-foot type of table. It might be a one-foot table that's on the ground. And the guests, as they would come, they wouldn't just sit down on the ground kind of like this, but they would put their feet behind them like this, and they would be propped up on some sort of a couch or perhaps a pillow of sorts. And so their feet would be behind them, and they would be engaging with the guests and the host this way. That's why we hear the woman comes in and is at the feet of Jesus. The woman comes in and is crying and wiping his feet off with her hair and pouring the perfume on his feet, which are behind him. Now, before again you think this is kind of a strange setup, in this day, um, especially in larger homes... Um, we would see uh, kind of a semi-public area that would be in the home where people could come in and out of. So they would enter this courtyard-type place uh, if they had a little bit of business to do with some people or if they wanted to even listen and engage a little bit with the dinner party that is being thrown here. Sometimes even the poor would kind of hang around a little bit hoping to get some leftovers from the meal that, that is there. But we know, as we see from the Scripture, that this wasn't just an ordinary home. It was a larger home, which meant it was from a prominent person who was doing well in their society. And this one was also a Pharisee. And in a Pharisee's home, not just anybody probably enters in, at least not without some raised eyebrows. In fact, if you were a woman of the city or if you were a sinner, um, it would be fearful that you would be contaminating the dinner guests, that you would be contaminating the group, that your sin would be coming off on them, would be rubbing off on them. As we discussed last week, the Pharisees taught that, Israel, we need to shape up. We need to get our lives right before the Messiah is going to come again. So this woman to come in here was a little bit of like, oh boy, everybody is now uncomfortable. And although we don't expect know that she was a prostitute, we can kind of put the pieces together on this. And the shocking degree of intimacy that actually this woman shows in this setting to Jesus 
is, is really um, kind of um, makes the crowd step back because as she lets her hair down to wipe off his feet, the people know that you're not supposed to do that. In fact, the people know that a woman was always supposed to keep her head either covered or her hair up. And if you let your hair down, that was only done in the bedroom to your husband. That was the only time that that was going to take place. And so when she even probably does that, you probably heard a gasp coming across the place as she is now kissing his feet, wiping the tears off of his feet, cleaning them as the host should have done. But everything about this scene was awkward. Everything about this scene was wrong, especially knowing her occupation. But Jesus reinterprets it as a loving act, not as an erotic act, because he knows her hearts. The others say, oh, hold on, hold on, why is she touching him? He's no prophet, he should know that she's not supposed to touch him. She's unclean, but Jesus sees her heart in the midst of this. And we don't know that kind of relationship that was there. Maybe she had fallen around some, maybe she had heard his teaching, but we do know that she has developed a faith in Jesus. And when she finds out he's there, she brings in her jar and she puts her tears on his feet and she wipes him and she cleans him. Now, the story Luke tells here, actually the suppers that, Jesus te- uh, that Luke tells about Jesus gathering into, a lot of them are kind of putting us into awkward places. It kind of puts us into the midst of last week was the tax collectors, today's the prostitutes. And, and, and you have these situations, these scenarios that Luke puts us in that I think kind of maybe presses up against us to say, how do we respond to this? How do we feel about Jesus in these kind of scenarios? And sometimes it cuts a little close to home. There's an author and speaker by the name of Barbara Brown, um, who uh, is actually a seminary professor, best-selling author. She's actually on the list of uh, Time Magazine's uh, 100 Most Influential People. She entered that list at some point in time uh, a number of years ago. Uh, And she is also a pastor, was a pastor of a church in the South, And um, this church would do something interesting. They would open up their worship center from 9 to 5 throughout the week so that people could drop in any time and pray and and, um, sit quietly in church and do those types of things. Um, And for most of the people, that's the way it was. But there were some people who would come in who would have some different ideas. And so they began to sense some kind of people coming in off the streets. And some of them were kind of, you know, making out in the background, some teenage kids. And some of them would be drinking and doing some other things like that. And so what they had to do in this church is they had to put a video camera up in the sanctuary to just kind of keep an eye on things. They still wanted to open it up to the community, but they thought, you know what, we just need to be safe about this. And so they put up a video camera that was monitored on the desk of the receptionist in the main office. So camera's there, um, kind of rolling, and, and the receptionist one time rang Barbara and said, um, you know, I usually don't bother you with these types of things, but I just want you to know there's a man there in the sanctuary who's face down on the steps right in front of the altar, and, um, you know, he's been there for hours, and uh, every now and then he gets up, he stands, he lifts up his hands, and then he puts them back down, and then he goes back on his face for hours upon hours again. She says, um, just wanted to make sure, does it sound like he's okay? So Barbara walks over and 
looks at the monitor and kind of calls the other pastors in, and they kind of stand around the monitor, and they're kind of looking, saying, what do we do? How do we respond to this? I mean, he's not causing a disturbance. And, um, and so they kind of get together, and they, um, not surprisingly, elect a church custodian to go over and check out what's going on in the sanctuary. So not that we would do anything like that around here, though, right? And, um, and, and, so, and so the custodian walks over, and all the other pastors kind of gather around the monitor, and they're watching and they see the custodian kind of walk through the church and go down right into the front and, and tap the man on the shoulder and kind of say something. The man says something back to him. The custodian walks back in, walks up into the offices, and they say, what do he say? What do he say? What do he say? The custodian said, he told me he's praying. Okay? So the plot kind of thickens here because you can't tell him he can't come in and pray in the sanctuary, Right? But every day that week, at 11 o'clock, he would come in, do the same thing, face down on the steps, lifting up his hands for a little while, putting them back down, getting back down. He would do this hours upon hours upon hours. Custodian told them, yeah, you know, his hair was kind of all knotted up. He had dust balls from being down on the ground so much. And throughout that week... It was a little awkward because the custodians had to vacuum around him. The people who came in to set up communion had to kind of, you know, set it up around him. Even the florists came in preparing for Sunday morning and kind of went over to the main office. Uh, do you want me to put these flowers someplace else? Because, I mean, right there, he's, he's, he's right there. I don't know what to do with them. Um, and so all the pastors kind of came together at the end of the week and said, what, what, what do we do here? We're not quite so sure. And one of the smart aleck pastors was like, um, well, you know what? I want that guy. I want to be on his prayer list because he, you know, he's praying a lot. So, so you know, they kind of just kind of sloughed it off. But a few minutes before 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, here he comes again. Comes down right to the front. Face down, face plant, right there. And so Barbara, uh, who was uh, the pastor that day speaking, kind of took it upon herself, walks down, taps him on the shoulders, not knowing if that day he's drunk or if he's crazy or just what's going on there. She tips toes up, taps him on the shoulder. Now she notices just how dirty his clothes are, how skinny he is, and said, you know what, I'm really sorry, but we are going to have a church service here in just a few minutes, and so I'm going to have to ask you to move. The man stands up, says, okay, and dusts himself off and walks right out the door. She never sees him again. The service goes on without a hitch. Everyone sang the song that they were supposed to sing. Everyone prayed the way that they were supposed to pray. Preacher preached the way that they're supposed to preach. Things happen like that as they do week after week after week. But this memory of this man begins to haunt Barbara the entire time that the service is going on. In fact, at the end of the service, she doesn't even feel like she can walk over that place on the altar because she feels like, you know, it's kind of some sort of a holy ground because she's remembering this undignified but passionate prayer vigil that this man was doing for the entire week. And it chastened her because she said, this love, as I reflected back on it, seemed to be so excessive, so undignified, so beyond just the call to mere obedience. And she concluded with this. She said, as I reflect back on that, and this was a long time ago that she writes about it, 
She said, it became to me apparent in the meantime that I know how to be obedient, but I don't always know how to love. Nor does it seem to be an ability that I can command. I can be obedient. If someone tells me what to do or I sense the Lord is telling me what to do, I'll follow through. I'll make it right. I'll make it right even in other people's eyes. But love, love that comes from my soul, love that I should be having for my fellow brother or sister, that doesn't come quite so easy. And I heard about that story and I thought, you know what? How much do I go there as well? How much do I as a pastor teeter on the side of being like Simon the Pharisee more than like the disciples who gathered with Jesus because of a heart of love for him? How much do we, we religious people, see it that way as well? How much do perhaps we get on the side of, well, we can be obedient, but we're not always going to love it? Because it, 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 it's easy to confuse changed behavior with a changed heart. And what ultimately Jesus wants is he wants that changed heart. Because when he has that changed heart, then we will be different people. And so as we grapple with this text here today, as we read about this story and as we think about this, who are we more like? Are we like Simon in this story? I mean, it's a challenging passage to me because a lot of times I feel like I'm more like Simon the Pharisee than I want to be or that I care to admit. And there's many times when I'm probably looking down my nose at people rather than having the heart of Jesus for people. I mean, it's why Jesus shares what he does in verses 41 through 43 and says, you know what, Simon? She was forgiven. And he puts the little mini parable out there about the 500 denarii. Look at all the things that she needs to be forgiven from. And here's the one who is forgiven for 50. Who do you think is going to end up loving him more? Now, I, I struggle a little bit with this story because it feels like it's a merit-based kind of forgiveness or love that's being done there. But Jesus says, yeah, you know what? The way you judge and the way the world judges, you're judging correctly. Yep. She is so much more going to have love. She is so much more going to feel forgiven. She's so much more there. Last week, the same type of thing happened. Remember the tax collectors that were in there and the Pharisees that were trying to berate them? We jumped over to Luke chapter 5 where we talked about the lepers and the leper came up to Jesus and they bowed. They fell before him. They said, we are unclean. And Jesus says, I'll make you clean. That's the heart. That's the heart Jesus wants. That's the heart that we're supposed to have. That's the heart that sometimes we don't. And I have to ask sometimes, even as I come here on Sunday mornings, God, where's my heart in the midst of this? I mean, I'll be real honest. Today, even as I was worshiping there, some conversation I've already had this morning, some conversations that I've been caught on surprise on some things that people have said, my, 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 my mind can go there. And sometimes it's not just praying for people. Sometimes it's kind of defending. and Sometimes it's kind of my own agenda. Sometimes it's not where it needs to be. Simon, really? Brad? How many times have I missed welcoming in Jesus like Simon missed it? Because look at what Simon the host, look at what he was supposed to do and did not do. He missed it. Look at there in verses 44 through 47. It says, Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You as a host gave me no water for my feet. 
She's cried tears and cleaned my feet. You didn't kiss me and greet me in that way, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I've came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil as a host. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? But she has anointed my feet with ointment. And what we see here is that Simon the host wasn't really the host and that the woman, the host who wasn't even a guest, she was a party crasher. And she pulls off the hosting more than Simon ever did. On the back of your outline are three questions that can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Three questions that we really need to ask ourselves. Three questions that um, I think will reveal our heart. And here's the first one. First question is this. And And these are simple questions. These aren't profound, life-changing questions, but if we truly answer them, they will be life-changing questions. First question is this, how do I see myself? How do I see myself? Look what it says in Luke 7.41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. See, this woman had no problem seeing herself as the 500 denarii owner that, that she owed. Because she knew she had to be forgiven much for the things that she had done. And and I guess I wonder, did Simon ever see himself even as the 50 denarii owner or debtor? Did, Did he ever get to that place? Because Jesus sets up this picture here, 500 to 50, a woman down here, uh, Simon, which one are you? Okay, I could be the 50, but I wonder if Simon ever even saw himself that way. And the woman, though, had great humility. The woman, though, comes with incredible gratitude. The woman turns that into true love. That humility turned into gratitude, turned into true love. And Simon, I don't think, ever saw himself rightly so. Many of you have probably heard the expression, religion is a crutch. How many, of you, how many of you ever heard that? Religion is a crutch? Yeah, yeah. You know what the truth of the matter is about Christianity? Not that Christianity is a crutch, but that Christianity is a stretcher. That's what it really is. That's the story. Not just a crutch to try and get by. Not just a crutch to kind of limp by. But Christianity is a stretcher that we have to get on and be taken to someone to be healed. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were dead in our sins. Stretchers are for ill people. Stretchers are for dead people. We were dead in our sins, it says out of Ephesians chapter 2. Our staff is going through a great Bible study right now. We just started it. We're doing it for the next month. Um, and it's talking about grace. And it's going over Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And in that writing, Paul identifies first, you were dead in your transgressions. You were dead in your sins. You don't deserve any of this. It's only by God's grace given to you that you even have that kind of relationship and if we forgot to see that that's how we need to view ourselves dead to ourselves dead to anything that god would want for us but then becoming alive only through what jesus did for us it's a series that we're going through as a staff um, and a series then that we're going to probably go through in the fall time when we have our all-in church-wide campaign because if there's one thing our city needs right now it is the grace of god amen amen and that starts with me and that starts with my staff And that starts with our diaconate board. 
And that starts with all of us in here. Because as we get that right, as we extend grace to one another, as we extend grace then to the people around us, and as we extend grace then to the city of Stockton, then one by one by one, God's grace will be recognized. But it begins by seeing ourselves, not as being able to earn it, not even being able to deserve it, but only with God's incredible love given to us. How do you see yourself? Let me give you a second point here. How do you see others? How do you see others that you interact with? In fact, Luke 7, says, Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now, that, that's the point I want to make. Do you see this woman, Simon? Do you... Uh, Since she came in, she's not stopped crying. She's not stopped tending to me. Do you you even see her? Can you see her for the value that she has with God? Do you see her story or do you just see her reputation that's been spread all around town? And that's true for us as well. Do we see people as God sees them? Or do we see people for what they can become when they're one of his children? See, when we see ourselves as the 500 denarii person, then we realize we have much to be forgiven, and we view ourselves much differently. You know, in our church, it's kind of a unique church we have. We, we have um, people who are sitting next to people who are from both ends of the spectrum. Right now, there are millionaires in this church who are sitting next to people who have nothing to their name. And nobody knows. Nobody knows who's who. That's the way we like it. Because in Stockton, you don't necessarily come all dressed up wearing the flashy clothes. You don't necessarily come in driving the uh, fancy sports cars and the real expensive cars. You come in just a lot of times even in jeans and just shirts and coming in a hoodie, and, 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 and I know some people here who, who live that kind of lifestyle, and, and they have so much, and they are so generous with the church, uh, and they're sitting next to people who have zero to their name. And yet I love seeing the greeting that goes back and forth. I love seeing how people worship together. I love seeing people make interactions. I love seeing on both sides of that spectrum when people say, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while, or I haven't seen so-and-so in a while, because you're caring for one another right there in the pews. In fact, after the last service, a gentleman came up who's in his 80s, been here at the church for a long, long time, said, you know, there was a time a number of years ago when there was a man who came in who I thought was off the streets, and he came in and he kind of hid over here in that little part over there. During the service, he was right down there. And so during the greeting time, I got over him and I said, hey, um, can I help you? Can I pray for you? Can I help you in some sort of a way? And the guy looked back up at him and he said, I'm actually a part of a message prop. I'm a part of a drama that we're going to do here in just a, middle, in just a minute at the church. But I slapped him five because he cared. The question is, can you see? Do you see this person? Do you see them? Do you see the people who are around you? Last week, um, I was out in the Narthex, and a lot of times the guys from the Gospel Center Rescue Mission come here on Sundays. We have a van that goes and picks them up and brings them here. Sometimes we have 20 or 25 of them. And a lot of times they sit out along the back 
And um, I encourage them. I say, hey, come on in. Come on in. Come on into the sanctuary. But sometimes they feel a little awkward. They feel a little uncomfortable. And so last week I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to show these guys we love having around here. And so I gathered at the end of the, not, not here in the front, but out in the narthex. I gathered at the end. And I said, here I come, guys. And during the worship time, I just ran down. And I slapped them all five. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, like that. And they all looked up like, oh, my. And I just did it to say, hey, guys, we see you. You're not just someone cast aside. You're not just someone going through a program that you'll arrive someday. But you're here. We love you. God loves you. This is the place you should be. And I would hope, I would hope you see everyone in that way as well. No matter if they don't smell as good as you do. No matter if they don't look as good as you do. No matter if they have different agenda, being a Democrat, Republican. Uh We like Trump. We don't like Trump. Hmm? Uh-huh. How do we deal with these kind of things, huh? We are all the same in God's eyes, whether we are drowning in 500 feet of water or 50 feet of water, we're still drowning in sin. Amen? And we're in need of a Savior. Whenever we look down on someone for being smelly or disorganized or lazy or emotional, or promiscuous, or socially inept, or bitter, then we're looking down as Simon, graceless Simon, looks at people. And when we look down on people for not understanding grace, then we're being like graceless Simon as well. And if you're thinking right now how this message applies to someone else and you wish that they were here today, then this is especially for you. Because then you're like Simon, judging and thinking, yeah, someone else would have benefited from this. Jesus says to us, if you look down on others, you love little because you understand so little about your sin and my grace for you. How do we see ourselves? How do we see others? Let me give you the third point that I think this story brings out for us, and that's this. How do we see Jesus? How do we see Jesus in the midst of this story? Look at what it says in verse 49. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Even he forgives sins? Who who, who even forgives sins? Who's supposed to be able to do that? That's only God. Whoops. Is that what he's saying? Absolutely that's what he's saying. And the people knew it. The people knew by those words that he was extending, You're forgiven. That only God was the one who could forgive people of their sins. And so they had to grapple with that. And they had to decide, is he delusional or is he God himself? You know, that same question needs to come for all of us. I think C.S. Lewis is the one who said it the best. Was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or was he truly Lord? Which one was he? Because you can't be all three. You can write him off as a liar. Say, ah, things he said, those weren't true. So so he just lied about them. Or you can say he was crazy. He was a lunatic, the things that he said. Because he said that he was God. But you can't say that he wasn't who he says he was when you come down to saying he was Lord. Because that's who he said he was. Is it going to be a liar? Is it going to be a lunatic? Is it going to be a liar? What's it going to be? And at the end of time, you're going to have to answer that question. And my encouragement to you today is to figure that out now if you've not figured that out yet. And if you study scripture, if you see the heart of Jesus, I think you will see 
that yes, indeed, he is Lord. That's why he came to extend that love to anyone and to everyone. That's why he came to even the marginalized of society and wanting to bless them. And when he saw this woman, he saw her actions towards him. That Those actions were the result of a faith that she had. And he says that right there at the end. He says, your faith has saved you, so now go in peace. You know what's interesting about this passage? Go back to verses 36 through 46. In those 10, 11 verses that are there, the feet of Jesus are mentioned 10 times. 10 times the feet of Jesus are talked about and discussed. You think God's trying to tell us something with that? Maybe that that's where we belong, at the feet of Jesus. Maybe that when we get to that place, that that's a place where we can take refuge at the feet of Jesus. And maybe as you get to there and linger there at the feet of Jesus, you'll find out that those feet, as the woman found out, as Jesus extended across this place, looking at the dinner party, and she's out here, and maybe as she was ministering and helping and, 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 and wiping the feet of Jesus, that those feet will go anywhere. And if you hang at the feet of Jesus, you'll find that those feet will go through first century Jerusalem and those feet will go through the streets of Stockton. You'll find out that those feet will be dirtied and sore and blistered for you. You'll find out that those feet will carry a cross and go to die for you. You'll find out that those feet will be pierced, nail pierced for you. And what you'll find out if you're there at the feet of Jesus, that that's actually the best place at the table. Because the last feeling I put there on the back of the page was just that at the best seat at the table wasn't actually at the table. It was at the feet of Jesus. And today as we've come in, and maybe even some of us kind of elbowing for the right place or to be seen by certain people in the right way or to kind of sit in our pews and sit in our seats and find it out for where we need to be. Um, Maybe Jesus is trying to reorient our lives and to say, nope, I'm sorry, this is where you need to be. This is who you need to be ministering to. This is where you need to be in your heart at my feet. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to spend a little time here at the end of the service praying, coming to those feet, realizing what Jesus has done for us. And um, we have a great song here at the end that Patrice is going to lead us in. And as that song is going on, um, I would just encourage you to open your hearts to what God wants to pour into your heart, that maybe your heart's been in the wrong place as you even came here today. Maybe you came here more out of duty than you did devotion. Maybe it's a time where you just need to get between you and God. And you know, if you want to come down here to the front and be at the altar, um, please come. This altar is always open at any point and any time. But today, if you'd like to come during our worship song, please, you're welcome to. If you want to be prayed for, just make eye contact with myself and I'll help. Not me, someone else will be praying for you. Or maybe you just want to be down here on your own. Please feel free to. But wherever you do this from, know that Jesus is here. He loves spending time with you. But today, let's start at his feet. Because that's where he wants us to start first. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we do come to the feet 
of your Son who you sent into this world to die for us. We come acknowledging Him as Lord. We come bowing before Him. And Lord, may our act of love be worship and praise that we give to you today. May our act of love start in a rightful posture before you. So Lord, whether that's prayerfully positioning ourselves in our pews and seats, or whether that's coming down here to the front to simply draw ourselves closer to you, God, I pray that as we've come here today to sense your presence, Lord, that it would begin with humility. And that humility would extend to gratitude. And that gratitude would walk out in true love for you. Lord, thank you for allowing us even a seat at the table. Today, we take it at your feet. And today, we worship you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.